Welcome and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode until the question and answer session of today's conference. At that time, to ask a question, please press star followed by the number one on your phone. And mute your phone and record your name when prompted. This call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. May I introduce your speaker for today, Reese Gerholt. Please go ahead. Great. Thank you, Tara. And good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of you that have joined today's background briefing on what you should know about the Paris Rulebook, um, which, as you know, will be a key topic at the COP24 UN Climate Summit in Poland this December. Um, the focus of this background briefing um, is on the Paris Rulebook. We'll have a separate press call later on that goes deep into the overall package of COP24, but this is more about the, you know, the, the intersection between COP24 and what needs to happen on the rulebook itself. Um, <clears throat> so as Tara said, I'm Reese Gerhold, the Senior Communications Manager for the Climate Program at WRI. And for those of you that are less familiar with us, uh, World Resources Institute is a global research organization working at the nexus of the environment, human well-being, and economic development. Uh, we have 700 staff working in eight global offices. Um, so today we have two great experts to brief you on the Paris Rulebook um, in the context of COP24, um, and each of them will be on the ground at the negotiations and available to speak with you further in the weeks ahead, uh, as well as, of course, during the, the, the negotiations. Um, our experts are David Waskow, our International Climate Director. Um, he will um, give some overview remarks on the genesis of the Paris Rulebook, how it fits into the broader context of COP24. Um, and then Yamiya Dagnet, um, our senior associate, who will give an overview of what's being negotiated at the COP um, on the Paris Rulebook and key aspects that you should really keep your eye on as the negotiations go forward. Um, we expect that at least one of our experts from our climate finance team may join us later in the hour to take questions you might have that are more of a, you know, a finance slant. Um, so we'll keep the remarks from David and Yamiya relatively short so we have enough time to answer a lot of your questions and have a lot of good back and forth with you. Um, and before we begin, I wanted just to flag that we just published a handy media tip sheet called Explaining the Paris Rulebook, What You Need to Know for COP24. It breaks down all the key issues in about five pages, so it should be a helpful resource for you. Uh, you probably already got my email about that, but if you didn't, just email this media tip sheet from my website at wri.org at COP24. Um, we're also making a recording of this call to share with those that are unable to participate and if you want to copy that, um, just let me know. Um, and uh, lastly, I, would just, I just want to reiterate this is a background briefing. This is not really for quotation. Um, however, during the call, if you hear anything you do want to quote, um, please just come back to us and confirm, and we can, and we can go that route. Or, of course, we can always set up a separate call for you to get an interview um, for quotation. Um, so with that, I will hand the floor over to Dave Alaska. Great. Thank you very much, Reese, and thank you, everyone. Um, thank you for being on. Um, we're pleased to do this. We're sort of in that um, last rush um, toward COP24 in Katowice at the moment. Um, so we thought this was an opportune time uh, to talk with all of you and give us our, uh, give you our sense of where things stand um, on the COP uh, generally, but more importantly, in particular, on um, the rule book um, and, and how that process is playing out. Um, I, we have said before, and I think this continues to hold true, that um, this COP is the most important one since uh, COP21 in Paris. This is really the moment uh, to put the Paris Agreement fully into motion and bring it um, really to, to life in all of its dimensions. Um, and that's true in, in several respects, and we... Um, uh, see this COP as really having three main pillars or, or um, dimensions to it that are important to keep an eye on and, uh, and are really essential to um, the kind of outcome that we'll have at Katowice. Um, so the first of those is the rule book um, itself, and we'll say uh, a bit more about that um, in, in a few moments. Um, the second uh, dimension is around ambition. Um, and there the question um, on the table, there are, of course, ambition elements in the rule book, but key question on the table right now is around 2020 and um, countries reaffirming that they are prepared to communicate NDCs by 2020 and that there's really a, a, a commitment in, in a broad sense um, to, in a collective sense, 
to looking at what the NDCs uh, are right now, to, to reviewing um, what is there and looking at the potential for further action and then beginning to put that in place as part of updated our new NDCs uh, that come forward by 2020. Uh, the third dimension is around finance and having clear um, and strong signals on, on finance flowing. Um, one element of that, though not the only one, is around the, the Green Climate Fund and the replenishment process, um, which the board uh, at the end of October put into motion, the board of the GCF put into motion, um, and now um, the question is really having um, good signals on that and other finance issues um, from countries at the COP. Um, so with that as the broad context, and, and, and all of those, I should say, are really part of this fabric that um, is um, what's needed in order to move forward on the Paris Agreement, and as I said, really put it fully into motion um, and begin the transformational process that's needed to achieve the long-term goals of the agreement. Um, with that as context, let me turn um, now to the rule book in itself briefly. Um, Yamid will go into much more detail, so let me just say a few um, contextual remarks about that. Um, I think it's important to think about the rule book not uh, in isolation or in a bubble, in some sort of international um, bubble. Um, it's not rules just for the sake of rules. It's about putting in place the framework that will enable action to take place on the ground in very concrete ways, and for action to be um, uh, implemented, but also for ambition to be increased over time. Uh, we have framed this in uh, terms of three uh, parts of an interlocking process, a planning dimension uh, that has to do with putting forward NDCs and really um, putting in place the kinds of goals that countries are seeking to achieve, a second dimension which has to do with implementation and really um, making sure that uh, what is needed to happen on the ground is happening and that barriers are, are being addressed. Um, and then thirdly, review, and that's both uh, a matter of review for individual countries, but also collectively in order to set the ground for increasing ambition over time. The last thing I'll say um, is just that um, the rulebook is important um, not only because of all that, but um, at this very moment because it is an important confidence setter um, for increasing ambition. That as countries look toward 2020, having the rule book in place, having some confidence about, for example, how NDCs uh, will be communicated will be quite important um, for countries uh, in looking to what they might do to enhance their NDCs by 2020. And so this is, as, as I've said, not in a bubble, but in fact has quite important consequences um, on the ground in a number of respects, including that, that ambition dimension. So um, let me stop there and hand it over to Yamid, who will take you on a deeper dive into the um, key issues that are at stake in Katowice. Thank you very much, and um, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, yes, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to uh, let you know what we are looking for in terms of outcome for the Paris World Book. Um, and also what could be uh, the, the most sensitive issues. Um, so what I would say also from the outset, as David uh, said, but just to reinforce, the World Book is a means to an end. You know, we are very much, uh, especially on the backdrop to, uh, of the IPCC report, uh, we know that every five years uh, we do have that rhythm where we need to enhance ambition and we are not where we need to be, and therefore, you know, that whole book is supposed to equip uh, countries, countries to, uh, to prepare their next round of NDCs and, 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 and to, 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 to help them to transition um, to, to the zero-carbon economy and a climate-resilient society. Um, so what we are looking for at this COP, and why 2018, because it's, this is data that has been agreed, but also to, uh, to provide time for countries to use those, uh, the World Book to prepare for the next round of NDCs. What we look for is that it's three things. First, countries uh, need to feel confident that they have a solid base of the World Book and a plan also to finalize the details. The World Book is a very complex uh, matrix, I would say, 
Um, and we know that negotiators have worked very hard. Uh, we, we have not been necessarily always where we were hoping to be, uh, but it's been a tough exercise, and ministers are starting to pick up on this uh, uh, issue, in this complex issue. And what we hope is uh, that the agreement, uh, there's an agreement on enough issues that reflect or convey a functional set of implementing, implementing guidelines to make the Paris Agreement operational, including on core issues. Uh, how countries communicate their future plans, so this is the NDC communication, how they account for their efforts, uh, how they also uh, give uh, a signal on not only the mitigation efforts but adaptation, how they capture such efforts, um, how uh, they report transparently uh, their efforts, so looking backwards uh, as much as looking forward, um, what the finance implication of, um, of, of of that journey, uh, what means of implementation uh, like uh, cooperative approaches, the use of market, non-market mechanism. Of course, there's also what makes this Paris Agreement unique, uh, like the, the, the global stock take, the ratchet up mechanism, and the compliance process, you know, which give a little bit of, of teeth. So these are some of the issues you know, to look, to, to, to watch out. Um, we know that it's so complex that uh, a few details, you know, on formatting, you know, the, uh, would need to be uh, further elaborated beyond the COP. Um, so we are pushing for the most comprehensive package. And uh, we also uh, hope that the package itself is going to be coherent cohesive. There's a lot of linkages between the different elements. We have uh, produced a number of papers, you know, that highlight those linkages. And there are trade-offs. Uh, you know, some, some issues are more important for some groups than others. And, uh, you know, the whole, uh, what happens all the time in the negotiations is, yes, uh, finding some compromise where every parties find that their key issues have been addressed properly. And uh, the, the other uh, dimension of, of that first point, you know, having a solid base, is to make sure that we do have some clause that allow this rule book to be revised as we're learning by doing. Uh, we may not have, you know, uh, a full package as, uh, as perfect, and there's a lot of room of improvement as we move along. So that's for the first, you know, getting a solid base. Um, uh, the second point is maintaining the spirit of Paris, so to make sure that we do have one set of guidelines that leave no one behind and move us away from the approach we've seen over the past 20 years where we had a bifurcated requirement between developed and developing countries to where we had also very often unclear guidelines and where we did have guidelines on restricted issues. So the issue of scope and how to bring flexibility into it are going to be key to watch. So what I was saying uh, in this regard, uh, just to unpack that second point a little bit, um, you know, we, we're looking for one set of guidelines, you know, uh, especially for the way countries will communicate their efforts in the NDC communication, uh, will report transparency on their efforts. Um, and to, to do that with flexibility for not only the small islands, least developed countries, but also all the developing countries that need it in light of their capacities. Um, that flexibility is definitely one of the issues to watch uh, because we need to be creative in uh, conveying this in the guidelines in a way that does not land into uh, uh, a bifurcated world again. And we, there are a few means to do that. You know, one would be to refer to the latest IPCC guidelines, you know, for all countries. Uh, and this is a guideline that actually already allowed by the use of tiers uh, countries um, to produce data, to share data based on their availability of data, uh, their ability to collect, use, and we know that there's a, a vast spectrum of capability on this. 
but the IPCC has equipped you know countries uh, over time, especially developed countries, to be where they are, to have sometimes state-of-the-art processes, and we hope that you know all countries, including developing countries, will even embrace this further. Um, another another dimension of on how to reflect uh, flexibility and 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 also to make sure that no one is left behind and we have a comprehensive uh, pack uh, set of requirements is to allow parties to report uh, uh, on a broader set of efforts so the Paris agreement prescribed a number of issues uh, uh, information to be included in the communication on the report and for some countries, they really want to see more details or uh, to see more issues taken uh, into account, like loss and damage, response measures. And, you know, the whole, uh, you know, debate is going to be how to allow for this without overwhelming the process. Um, and another another dimension is, of course, because of differ, differing capabilities, some countries may be unable to fulfill with their requirements, with all of their requirements straight away to, to provide perfect uh, communication or report. And we hope that the review mechanisms, you know, the individual reviews and the collective reviews, you know, are going to, to empower countries to improve over time. To identify the gaps and to improve the quality of the reports and to inform the national decision making process so that uh, with better data, countries also uh, uh, design better policies and enhance their ambition ultimately. <clears throat> Another uh, so I will, the, the, the solidarity uh, dimension is important and it's not just about finance, it's about also capacity building. Uh, this is an important uh, issue. Um, uh, the capacity building initiative on transparency has been established uh, under the Paris Agreement. Um, there's going to be report, discussion, um, and, and, and countries will want to make sure that uh, developing countries will be willing to make sure that they will be uh, further supported in their journey because this is going to be a steep uh, change for them, for many of them. Um, so just to summarize, uh, sticking points, getting the right level of information, the robustness that countries need to, uh, to trust each other uh, on not only what they're planning, to understand and trust each other on what they're planning and what they really have done, and to make sure that what they say is also aligning with what uh, the, the atmosphere sees. Uh, the second is making sure that uh, the set of guidelines is empowering, durable, comprehensive, so addressing flexibility, uh, making sure we've got the right processes to discuss context to contentious issues. Um, and uh, the, the, the third point is making sure that there are some means of implementation um, that, you know, um, uh, countries are going to, uh, to have of confidence in the type of uh, financial uh, support uh, that is going to be provided, mobilized. Uh, there's going to be the the, the, the market uh, or non-market mechanisms uh, being looked at. Uh, but more importantly, there's capacity building to really uh, make the most of those systems. And I would just, you know, my, my last point is to say that we do have uh, a publication um, setting the Paris Agreement in motion that gives you a broad overview of, you know, the type of guidelines that we could expect, which means that we know this is feasible. And I think the good, the hopeful news is that after the pre-COP, you know, when ministers uh, met, uh, a few ministers met with their uh, head of delegation, they feel that uh, this uh, Paris full book, despite its complexity, is within which uh, the question is making sure that it is of high quality. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. That was a great overview, I think, um, from you, Yimid, as well as you, David. Um, so now we can go into questions. I would say there's a good a number of you, um, so I would just ask that as we gather your questions, um, that perhaps you can ask one, and then rather than do another follow-up question immediately afterwards, if it's kind of somewhat unrelated, perhaps we can get you back in queue and make sure everyone has a chance to 
get their questions um, answered over this uh, the rest of the hour. Um, so, Tara, our operator, um, would you please explain how people can submit their questions? Certainly. We will now be. If you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by the number one in your phone and mute your phone and record your name clearly when prompted. Your name is required to introduce your question. To cancel your request, your press star followed by the number two. Great, yeah, so just star one to get in queue, and then we will go and we can jump into the first question. Yeah. Oh, I should say, yeah, I did um, mention earlier, um, but we do have our, our climate finance um, colleagues here as well in case there are finance questions. Um, but I'll we can go to the first question. Thanks. Thank you. The first question comes from Lisa Friedman. Your line is now open. Hi guys, thanks so much for doing this today. Um, I have a strategy question. I mean, the U.S. has been, you know, perhaps the strongest advocate of transparency and ending bifurcation, but since at this point it kind of lacks any moral authority to ask much of other countries, given its intended withdrawal, I'm wondering what what you hope the strategy is here. I mean, are you hoping the U.S. stands back and lets Europe take the lead on some of these issues, or are you still maybe relying on, you know, the, the hope of, like, goodwill and personal relationships with State Department negotiators to to move some of these issues? What, like, how, how are you hoping and how are you expecting that the U.S. plays this, yeah. given given all the dynamics here? Yeah. Um, thanks, hi, Lisa. Um, so, I mean, first uh, thing to say, I think, is that the U.S., as you implied, has had a fairly consistent position uh, on transparency issues, a quite clear position in favor of transparency, a transparency framework that applies to all. Um, and I think that that is um, a, a view that it extends back several administrations and is um, still essentially consistent with what the view of this administration um, would be, particularly when you think about um, the question around China and, and um, transparency with China. So I think that there's a through line just in terms of what the actual substantive um, point of view is. Um, in terms of how they um, articulate that or what um, posture they take in the negotiations, I think um, uh, from my perspective, at least, it's sort of a balancing um, question because, on the one hand, um, the U.S. has been a clear articulator of that viewpoint, and I think its um, sort of understanding of those issues continues to be something that's relevant in the negotiations. And um, also, I think, actually, frankly, parties, other parties will want to hear in, in some ways. And um, also, it's important to bear in mind that the co-facilitator of the transparency negotiating track um, continues to be a U.S. Uh, negotiator um, who is working with a Chinese co-facilitator. Um, so the U.S. will certainly continue to play a role in that way. Um, at the same time, um, as you were saying, essentially, and as you were implying, it's, um, uh, the U.S. has uh, less leverage um, and less of a base from which to speak, less of a leg to stand on, if you will. Um, and it would um, be unhelpful for the U.S. to overplay its hands. And um, to be uh, overly vocal, and there's certainly other parties, the EU and others, um, who um, also um, want to have a common uh, framework for transparency. Um, and, and, and honestly, it extends beyond developing countries. I mean, there are, for example, ALAC, the, the progressive Latin American countries, who also um, have clear um, uh, uh, points of view on that issue in favor of um, that kind of common approach. Um, so I, I do think it's, it's a balance in terms of the U.S. also um, uh, standing back a bit and, and allowing others to um, uh, take much of the lead in terms of uh, how to negotiate an issue like transparency. Yes, and just to reinforce you know, two points that David said, um, the good thing is that the U.S. in its facilitating role with China on transparency has done a good job so far. You know, it's a very complex. If you look at the negotiating tool on the website, it's complex. It's long. There's a lot to go through. And they managed to get a good conversation um, and to rally um, 
you know, most of the negotiators, you know, uh, uh, focus in a focused manner into those questions. And as the second point is that the small islands, least developed countries, uh, Latin American countries, um, uh, the, the rest of the umbrella group, so Canada, Japan, Australia, um, uh, uh, Norway, you know, are very vocal on this. So you do have actually uh, a strong uh, alliance. And, uh, you know, the other, the other group, I would say that that try to keep the bifurcated line is from a uh, tactical point of view. Most, you know, most of the time, uh, I think we're seeing uh, the emergence of uh, proposals that could, you know, address uh, that flexibility. But uh, those groups would be uh, pushing for getting other things. You know, this is where we get into the trade-offs. Thank you. Right. Can you go on to the next question, please? Our next question comes from Nikki Endo. Please go ahead. Oh, hi. Uh, it is me. It's, it's Kiyoshi Endo of Japanese newspaper Nikkei. Hello? Yes. Hello. Thank you for joining. Sorry about the mistake on the name. Please yeah. go ahead. Do you hear? Yeah. Okay. So I have a question about the overall negotiation, I mean, the preparation so far. You've been preparing for this COP24 for a year or so. The old negotiators are preparing. So how far have we come? Are we coming uh, enough as planned or we are still halfway uh, and there are a lot more to do than we have expected in the beginning? And how is IPCC's 1.5 special report contributing to this uh, this whole uh, process. Um, hi, this is David. I'm going to just uh, jump in on the 1.5 uh, report question, and Yamid will um, talk about where we stand in the negotiating process. Um, I, I think the 1.5 report has actually added quite a bit of impetus um, to uh, agreeing on the rule book, and, and frankly, to agreeing on one that's that's robust. It's, um, I, I think people have recognized that. Um, we are in a uh, perilous state in many ways, and so um, really having the Paris Agreement fully functional and getting these implementing guidelines in place that can enable that is critical. Um, and also um, that it uh, is done in tandem with um, the ambition efforts, particularly around 2020. So I think all of that has been um, a real push in the right direction, um, and certainly we heard um, that reports out from the pre-COP um, that Yamid mentioned uh, that took place a couple of weeks ago in Krakow, uh, those report outs were that um, ministers and heads of delegation really did have on their mind um, the way in which the 1.5 report um, pushes in the right direction in terms of getting this done and getting it done well. I think it's not just a question of getting it done, but but actually doing it in a robust way. So um, hopefully that answers your question. Let me hand it over to you, Mead, in terms of the sort of where do we stand in actually getting all of this done. Yes, so uh, thank you for your question. I would say that we came a long way. Uh, this, this was a huge uh, enterprise. You know, this Paris Agreement uh, is not you know, just climate, you know, there's a lot of politics in it because it's climate, economic, social, because of its, all, all those dimensions. Um, but, you know, although we came a long way, we started very slowly. And that slow start prevented us to be probably as far as we could have been. Um, but, you know, as David said, uh, it's, you know, getting at least the basis right, you know, are within which. The question is how comprehensive and detailed it's going to be. We do expect, you know, some levels of details to be further elaborated next year. So, uh, but, but we, we, we don't want to speculate too much about how much of those level of details will be pushed or postponed next uh, uh, next year, we want to push for the most comprehensive package possible. So, um, I think we've, but we need to be realistic. Uh, we have five days left of negotiations in Katowice. 
for you know to to resolve a number of uh, technical and 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 some political issues. Uh, so uh, we need to be realistic of what needs to be done. Uh, we know that a lot of negotiators are currently engaging in a number of outreaching activities. There's a Card Arena dialogue uh, meeting happening this week. Uh, it's, it's a group of progressive countries looking at uh, compromises. So, um, so, so yes, I think the first week is going to be very intense. Most of the negotiators are not going to be um, um, very much available. Uh, but I think the, the the will, the political and technical will, is there to really get as far as we can. And, and just to clarify what you mean, um, I think Matt, in terms of the five days, that's the five days that the, or I think they've added a, a, a partial earlier day now, so maybe six. Those are the days that the negotiators will have. They will then begin the process of handing over to ministers in the second week, and mm-hmm. and so. Um, there's a lot of that technical work that'll have to happen, as Yumid was saying, the first week, um, really on the nitty-gritty of all of these um, complex interlinkages about uh, among the parts of the agreement, and we could say more about what those linkages are. Um, and then the political questions really come to the fore in the second week. But it all happens also before, you know, you know, Poland. Uh, that that was also the point. You know, negotiators are not just sitting in their in their uh, <laughs> offices at the moment. They are actually engaging in a lot of outreach to try to identify. If you if you look at the text that we currently have, there's a number of options. So the idea for them is to reach out to each other to see, you know, what could emerge as an ending zone. And uh, to some extent, we are also keeping sight of it and. Uh, we, we're trying to engage and make suggestions also on on how you know those uh, you know the best outcome, the most ambitious outcome could emerge as well. Yeah, and, and just to add one other thing is that the co-chairs have released a draft negotiating text, um, which um, helps frame the questions that the negotiators and then uh, the ministers will have to engage with, um, and so that that has really helped funnel down what was a very broad set of options into some very, uh, some much clearer um, specific approaches that they may take. And it's not to say that it's all laid out in, in perfect form, um, but it does, it does help clarify what decisions need to be made. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Operator, we can go to the next question, please. And others, if you want to get in the queue, just press star one. The next question comes from Suzanne Ellerding. Your line is now open. Yes, hello. Thank you very much. Um, uh, to, uh, I must admit, the, what you said stays still quite abstract for me. So I would like to ask, can you give one or two examples what would be an ambition, uh, ambitious text or outcome, and what would not be an ambitious outcome of the uh, rule book. So, so, so I could just figure out what uh, what the negotiations are talking about, and what are the politically crucial points, please. So uh, again, if you look, so in our uh, paper, setting the Paris. Uh, agreement in motion, we give some detailed overview and example of the type of element that we believe would be uh, ambitious, but I'm going just to give you a couple of examples. Uh, if you need more, you know, we could have a chat, you know, uh, to elaborate further. But so when it comes to what countries are going to uh, to communicate, their, their, the plans, that their, their efforts that they are going to, uh, to communicate, and also uh, the, the way <clears throat> they're going to report on their efforts. One critical element is the type of guideline that they're going to use, um, you know, to produce their uh, emissions inventory. This is an important tool to not only uh, track uh, the emission trends, but to inform also uh, parties on what are the key sectors and um, of uh, and where there's more potential uh, to reduce emission and uh, trying to make sure that 
all countries are using the same guidelines will be a progress. At the moment, we do have developing countries using 1996 guidelines and developing country uh, and developed countries using 2006. Uh, these IPCC guidelines are up for update next year. So, you know, one of uh, one of uh, uh, you know a good outcome for us uh, would be that there's agreement that all countries will be using um, from a start date um, uh, to be agreed and not to be too far off um, this this uh, this latest. IPCC guidelines and latest is good because it's you know if in the future there's further updates as you know science and technology becomes greater you know there's a possibility to still be um, at the forefront and to, to produce better data so this is one example another another one is when we are going to start to have uh, this uh, new enhanced regime kicking off. Um, and there are uh, there is a debate on um, on uh, whether it should start as early as 2022. So you know a report in 2022 for developed countries would include emissions up to 2020. You know so that's that's the timeline that we have seen for developed countries. Developing countries generally have a four-year timeline, and um, so some developing countries are wondering whether, uh, you know, to start, you know, looking forward in the new regime, uh, whether, you know, the first, you know, date should be 2024 uh, or even later. Uh, what we're saying, what we're pushing is, well, especially with the IPCC report, we cannot wait so long, um, you know, to have the process to kickstart. And, you know, by 2026, for example, you know, the, the, the guideline would be already uh, almost uh, 12 years of solace. So it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, well, eight years. So it's going to be important to make sure that, you know, we find the right, you know, uh, starting point while allowing developing countries uh, to really uh, accelerate uh, their uh, their transition and equip them with the right capacity to to do that. So that's uh, another example. Another example is um, on the global stock take. Um, you know what what we see is uh, there's there's two. Uh, we would like to have a sense as to um, you know what is going to be discussed uh, at the moment. Uh, you know, whether we're going to look at um, the progress from mitigation, adaptation and support as we have done in the past or whether we will be, uh, it will be, the conversation will be driven more by the long-term goals. So on temperature, the temperature uh, goal, the resilience goal and the finance um, alignment, uh, the, the alignment of climate finance goal. And, you know, having, having this uh, the, the conversation driven by those three goals enable a more comprehensive set of consideration. Um, so like the IPCC, you know, put it clearly, you know, when you look at the temperature goal, you look at the implication on adaptation, you, you look at, you know, what, what implication beyond adaptation when countries, you know, cannot uh, adapt and what are the impacts in terms of loss and damages. Um, so, it, it, it is very sensitive for some countries, but you know we we feel that it's very important that uh, during such consideration, all countries are uh, you know feel that they are going to be uh, uh, you know their issues are going to be uh, their contexts are going to be taken into account, and that they will be provided the means also to really go further faster. So these are three examples. Um, we could elaborate on more um, uh, in a further call. Okay. Thank you. Thank Our you next question much. comes from Ormi Goswami. Your line is now open. Oh, hi, thanks for doing this. Uh, you know, you, you, uh, I know the, the call is focused on the Paris School book. But I was wondering, like at the last COP, we saw the issue of pre-2020 kind of play havoc with what had been planned. And I'm wondering, because pre-2020 is going to be discussed at this COP, what, A, what bearing it has, uh, it, it is likely to have, 
on the Paris rulebook uh, discussion and and the fact that uh, you know and and though there are only two years left uh, the the political sort of significance that that might be attached to any discussion that happens on pre 2020 especially in terms of ambition i mean the whole uh, with the ipcc report and the focus of acting now and acting as a short window of acting you might have developing countries push once again on pre-2020. So how does that fold into what is expected to happen at Katowice? Thank you. Um, you. You're right. So first of all, to answer your question, pre-2020 will be considered in Katowice. There's going to be um, a, a, a space provided um, you know, to discuss this particular issue. It's a kind of uh, a dialogue on pre-2020 issues that is, that is scheduled. Um, where uh, not only uh, ambition in terms of mitigation is going to be considered, but probably also in terms of the border support package. Um, so I, we, we, we expect this particular space to allow conversation on, you know, what did go wrong, what did, you know, what we could do further in the next two years, you know, to accelerate the pace and put us in a better space. Uh, 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 in, in a better position to, 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 to meet the requirements. So it's going to happen, right? And that's going to be also taken into account, you know, in the Tananoa dialogue, uh, you know, um, uh, which is going to focus on on looking forward based on where we are, where we need to be, and how we get there. So that's going to happen, and of course, you know, there are trade-off, David said at the beginning, you know, the, the outcome of COP24 is a package that's going to be trade-off between the different pillars of that package. So, you know, in terms of ambition, pre and post-2020, you know, what elements are going to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what will be the result there is going to also affect uh, probably how we're going to perceive the finance package um, uh, and also the, the, the rule book eventually. Uh, what, what is important, however, to know is, is within the rule book itself, there's already some trade-off and there's going to be some dedicated time, however, to really put this forward. And, and, and what organization lackers are trying to do is to make sure that we get you know, that narrative right, that everything is important. Um, but we should not necessarily use, you know, one difficult issue as an excuse not to not to to move along on uh, a, a period that is so critical, you know, for the credibility of the regime. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Henry. Our next question comes from Lou Del Bello. Please go ahead. Hi, can you hear me? Perfect. Hello? Oh, thank you. Sorry. I wasn't sure if my microphone was working. Um, so my question regards, um, it's a bit of a strategy question, like the one Lisa asked about the U.S., uh, but this time it's about the new Brazilian administration. Um, so the new president comes in with a, a very strong environmental agenda, and we know that, for example, uh, how the world treats their forests, it's very important for all countries, although obviously the Amazon is a Brazilian territory. Uh, do you envisage any tough conversations in uh, the discussion over the rulebook and the implementation of the Paris Agreement um, coming from these new approaches in Brazil, for example, but I guess in other countries too? Oh, um, uh, when you say, um, uh, thanks, Lou. Um, when you say other countries, you mean on forest issues specifically, or is that what you were getting at? Sorry, I, if you're, you might be muted. We can't hear you. Yeah, maybe the operator may have muted her out. Well, um, I, I think. Um, you know, we we have an office in Brazil. WRI has a presence there, um, uh, and I think our our team there is really wanting to see how things begin to play out before assuming that they will go in one direction or another necessarily. So I, I think there's still a lot to watch um, in terms of um, how that does begin to 
um, shape up um, one way or another. Um, the um, the question for the negotiations may be somewhat different. As you know, Brazil right now is slated to host the COP next year. Um, they have historically um, been an important player, of course, in the negotiating process. Um, I don't know, and you may, may um, speak to this as well, I, I don't know that there's anything that may change at this point in terms of their posture. Um, and... Um, so, I mean, for that as well, I think there may be a bit of a wait and see um, that we need to have at this point to, um, you know, once we land at the top to see exactly how um, it begins to play out. Yes, and I would uh, I would use, uh, you know, a, a sentence that, uh, a quote that the Brazilian is very often in the negotiation is, we should not prejudge, you know, what's uh, <laughs> going to happen. Um, but, you know, what I would say, yes, I think the key word here with, with, with Brazil is uncertainty. And, and I, and I think we need to, to watch carefully. Um, Brazil is an important uh, country. They've been really, you know, uh, they invested a lot of energy, uh, you know, uh, since forever in, in the, in the negotiations, especially on the transparency issue. Um, so uh, they've been very vocal. So we we're going to see, you know, how they're going to, uh, you know, to to continue to push. We're going to see how uh, the new position of the government is going to affect the dynamics within Basic. Um, so it's a watch and see. But you know, they've been such a vocal and important player um, that it would, you know, that we we just need to give them the benefit of the doubt now. Uh, the you know the the, the diplomats you know uh, the, the, the Brazilian diplomacy has been known for um, you know for for its you know outcome and it's um, you know we just need to to watch and see I would say but noting that there are they've been an important player and they they do have also a lot at stake in their in those um, in in the the adoption of the Paris full book and, and, and maybe even more this year, actually, uh, uh, because of this uncertainty, uh, maybe that's going to be actually a push for everyone to, 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 to make, um, you know, the most progress this year and, and not leave so much next year. Let's see how it plays out. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your question, Lou. Um, we actually don't have any more questions in queue, so if you guys want to um, chime in, and this is your time to do it, um, just press star 1 to get in the queue, and we can allow you that we have another about 10 minutes or so um, that we could put towards that or not if you guys want to drop off. Um, and I just want to reiterate, too, that we are recording this call, um, so if for some reason you weren't able to join um, at the beginning, um, just let me know, and I will send you the recording afterwards. Um, but yes, I'll just pause here, give people you know, maybe 10 more seconds to um, submit a question uh, with star one. Um, otherwise, we'll close out the call. I think we have one more question coming in. Um, Operator, go to the next question. Our next question comes from Mr. Ando. Please go ahead. This is Kiyoshi Ando, Nikkei, uh, once again. Um, in the beginning, I think you said uh, the United States is stepping uh, back a little bit and allowing other uh, parties to take lead. Um, do you think uh, Japan could be one of the players who could take lead, or since we still rely a lot on coal and we have uh, uh, we receive a lot of critics, um, and Japan may not be very uh, important in these uh, uh, talks. Yeah. So um, first, I just wanted to clarify on what I said. I, I, I was giving my my perspective on what I thought the um, appropriate strategic posture uh, for the United States would be, um, uh, given that overplaying its hand, I, I do think, could be um, detrimental to the process. Um, as I said, it's a balance. <laughs> Um, so just wanted to clarify, I don't, I, you know, not, I wasn't um, being descriptive um, so much as uh, giving my take on uh, what what might be most appropriate and, and uh, work best in the process as a whole. Um, but let me let me hand it to Yamid 
um, on the Japan question, and then I think Joe has something to add on the pre-2020. Yes, I I would say that we would like Japan to take more leadership. Um, I think um, on in the rule book they they have their favorite uh, issues. You know, the market mechanism is definitely one that they care a lot. You know, they've been engaging, especially in the region, the Asia-Pacific region, a lot with their countries. So the fate of, you know, the cooperative approaches uh, matters to them greatly. So they will definitely lead charge there. They do care a lot about transparency. Uh, now, in terms of ambition, it's more complicated for the reasons that you outlined domestically. Um, they're going to have, however, the leadership on, in the G20 next year. So, you know, this is uh, a country that uh, we still need to keep um, in, in, in the back of our mind and that we hope to push to play, uh, you know, uh, fully its leadership in the G20 next year. And, um, and also to be, uh, you know, uh, on the more progressive side um, there. And the other issue, so I mentioned the World Book, I mentioned, uh, uh, I mentioned um, uh, the ambition. I think where they can also play a good part as a major donor is on finance. And that's a good transition, actually, uh, to um, my colleagues uh, on the finance team, uh, so we do have uh, Nira who leads on anything related to funds in uh, within the climate architecture, uh, and we do have Joe who has spent you know spent a lot of time in the nitty gritty uh, you know um, intricacies of of the negotiations. So you can reach out to them separately. Um, but Joe, you wanted to say something on the pre twenty twenty. Yeah, no, well, I'd just say on, on Japan and, and indeed all developed countries that they um, uh, they will have an opportunity, um, particularly in the next uh, year or so. Um, the Green Climate Fund has just started uh, their replenishment process, um, and so we're looking to all developed countries to step up with ambitious um, pledges uh, to that. Uh, so that's one one concrete way that, that, that Japan and other countries could contribute. And then just on this pre 2020 question that we had we had a, a few minutes ago, um, obviously one of the key elements of, of pre 2020 action is is, um, is is climate finance, and um, it's, it was an important part of the Paris package. It, it's an enabler of ambition, uh, but it also builds trust in the negotiations. Um, and um, in pre-2020, developed countries made a commitment in uh, 2009 to mobilize $100 billion a year for developing countries in climate finance. Um, and there are um, understandable questions about um, how, far, how far along we are to that. Um, that's due by 2020 again. Um, this year is going to be a new report coming from the Standing Committee on Finance. That's the UNFCCC's technical finance body. Um, it's made up of equal numbers of developed and developing country negotiators. And we expect that to be out um, in, in the next week or two, actually, um, uh, and, and certainly by COP at the latest. Um, and that's going to look at the years 2015 and 2016. And it will give you a big picture overview of all financing, you know, including private and all, all, all kinds of investments that are, that are relevant to climate. But it's also going to uh, focus in on, on the um, international developed to developing country finance flows. Um, so that should give us a much clearer picture of where we are. Yes, and Nira, you would like to... Yeah, actually, if it's possible, since we're low on time, is it possible we have two more questions we want to get in? Um, we can go over the, over the hour if you have time, but I want to make sure we get through these two questions. That's okay? Perfect. Yeah, okay. Sorry, Nira. Um, you can go on to the next question, please, operator. The next question comes from Laurie Gearing. Please go ahead. Hi, this is Laurie Gearing from the Thompson Reuters Foundation. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Um, I had a question about the... Um, the 1.5 degree report, which has essentially said we have 12 years to shift anything, and 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 what your views are on how this process that's been so painstakingly put in place over so much time is set, is capable of of taking on that kind of a deadline. You know, the, the, we we know that the what's happening out in the real world is happening fast, and and this process is um, is a slower one. How do those two things match up? And then alongside that, we talked about 
um, the, you were talking about getting the right processes around contentious issues. What do you see as being the big contentious issues and what are processes that might work to resolve those in your view? Um, so uh, thanks, uh, Laurie. So on the first question, I think that um, the, the timing in some ways is good, right? I mean, yes, the, the UNFCCC process it, you know, can move slowly along, but um, we're actually at a, at a critical pivot point here where, um, as we've said, this, this is a decision moment to put the agreement fully into motion and, and, and really have its moving pieces uh, move. So um, that is, that's what needs to happen at, at Poland, and, and given um, what the IPCC report said, we don't have a lot of time to wait um, to get those pieces in place and, and in motion. Um, I do think an important outcome, and as I said, the rule book helps set the stage for ambition. There is another dimension to what needs to happen in Poland um, on ambition that is very near term, and that's what countries will do in terms of strengthening their NDCs by 2020. Um, that really, that process needs to kick off in Poland. There's the UN Secretary General's Climate Summit that will happen next September uh, in New York. That's going to be a key moment in terms of countries coming forward with their intent around enhancing and strengthening their NDCs. Um, and then by 2020, actually submitting them. Um, that needs to be a clear, there need to be a clear set of signals coming out of Katowice around that process and around countries' readiness um, to engage seriously. The rule book is, is, is a, a dovetail with that. The rule book is really necessary in order to give countries the sense of confidence and the ground, the foundation um, for, for actually doing that. So hopefully all of that will come together and address the sort of the, the call to action, if you will, the sort of urgency that, that comes out of the IPCC report. And so quickly to your next question, and I think we can take it uh, offline, uh, big contentious issues. I think, you know, I was, I was alluding to the review processes, individual review processes, the global stock take. You know, countries do not like to be uh, finger pointed. They don't like uh, to be judged necessarily. Um, so there, so how to create a process where there's sufficient peer pressure, uh, but that, uh, that is done in a facilitative manner, uh, so that they really embrace it, uh, fully to, uh, to, to identify their gaps and seize opportunities to go further faster. Other issues, you know, are, you know, how to take into account loss and damage more particularly, you know, for some developed countries. It can be very sensitive because they really do not want to, uh, these to deviate into uh, compensation and liability issues. Um, and, you know, other, other things are like, you know, response measures. But we can discuss, you know, further um, uh, offline about some of those sensitive issues. Thank you. I, this is Nidanjali. I'll, I'll just add that, you know, finance is also a contentious, contentious yes, issue. That's a good point. Uh, that, tends to boil up, particularly toward the end of the negotiation. So it's one that is yeah. important oh, to keep an eye on. And I'm not going to get into all the technical details because we're short on time, but certainly you know, we, there are some technical issues that, that um, parties will need to make progress on, including on transparency or financial reporting and the like. But one of the things that will help uh, in particular to unlock some of the, the contentious uh, dynamics around finance w will be uh, positive messaging from contributing countries around the Green Climate Fund replenishment and, and um, also supporting the Adaptation Fund and the Least Developed Countries Fund, sort of saying that, you know, those funds don't matter, and any other climate finance-related pledges to increase ambition. Those are things that politically will help unlock some of, sometimes what can become an extremely challenging discussion. That's perfect. Thank you, Mira. Mm -hmm. Great. And I know we are over time, and actually I'll ask a question to our speakers. Um, we have two questions in queue. We can um, either tend to take them now if you have the availability, um, or we can just take them offline. Um, what's your maybe, schedule look like? Maybe we, could, maybe we could hear the two questions in a row and see how we can respond as quickly as possible. That's a great idea. Yeah, let's, let's try that. So, operator, can go to the next question. The next question comes from Paula Tama. Your line is now open. Hi. Uh, can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, 
we know that um, the rule book is the outcome, the desired outcome. I wanted to know procedurally how much of a uh, concrete document will it be at the end of Katowice and how much technical work will actually have to take place in the further months. So what, it, what can we consider uh, an acceptable outcome at the closure of the COP? Thank you. Right. Thank you very much. And uh, let's go on to the next question, and we can um, tackle this at the same time. Next Operator, question you the next comes question? from Natalie yeah. Sauer. Your line is now open. Yeah, mine is quite a broad uh, question. You talked about um, the U.S. Uh, and Japan and what they might be after in the rule book. Um, what about the other big players? Um, who are they and uh, what do they want? You're breaking up a little bit there. It was hard to hear. Reese, I don't know if you I, caught it better. I, I got the sense she was asking that you talked about the, you know, the U.S. and what their, um, how they, their posture for the Paris rule book could be. Um, what might it be for other major countries around the world? That's it. Yeah, okay, great. Okay, okay so <laughs> we try to... Um, so, so what we do expect, you know, out of the COP is a set of COP decisions. Um, you know, we... So, so, so the COP decisions can can have different form, form um, to uh, include, to encompass the um the the Paris rule book itself there's a number of things that can be uh included in an annex uh or you know whether and and how the different um uh requirements are going to be bundled together remains to be seen there's there's, there's different uh options there uh but you know when you is going to be conveyed in cop decisions maybe you could if you look at the marrakesh accord after the kyoto protocol this is you know uh, a kind of uh, precedence uh, this is one way we could see this so we had you know uh, you know at, at that marrakesh cop a set of you know um cop decisions that outlined the different requirements that countries uh, adopted so 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 yes yeah, so, so that's one thing and then for what to be left, you know, after. Um, I will give you a couple of examples, um, but, you know, um, I don't want to prejudge. You know, the, you know, one thing is, uh, for example, on the transparency framework, uh, there's a number of set of, uh, of information we would like to see. Uh, what format is it going to be? So, um, you know, to make sure that the information is clear and comparable, you know, between country. Uh, is it going, we, we know that we would like the, the well, the, the rule book, uh, the, the guidelines adopted in Katowice can say this information is going to be captured in a tabular format, but what the tabular format is going to look like remains to be seen. Um, uh, you know, how to, to make sure that we account um, uh, robustly the different uh, type, you know, the, of, of, of commitments. You know, we do have economy-wide targets, um, uh, targets against business as usual, uh, different sets. And, and in order to make sure that there's no double counting, you may need to have some sort of balance sheet. And, 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 and countries will not have time to discuss, you know, how those balance sheets could look like. And that could be, uh, you know, um, another set uh, of it would require more time after Katowice to uh, to do that. So these these are two examples, and we could elaborate further in our paper. Uh, you know, we we do have uh, for each uh, key issues to watch. You know, a, a, a section about the type of uh, questions and elements that could be discussed after. Um, yeah. And of course, beyond U.S. and Japan, there's a number of other countries that matter. You know, we are in a world now on distributed leadership, and I will leave uh, David maybe to have the final words before the close. Uh, yeah, that. I mean, I, I think that other for other countries, that everything is in play and at stake, right? And so I think, you know, it's um, uh, there's no reason for any country to do anything other than, than fully engage at this point. It will be quite critical for the EU, um, as we noted, to be fully engaged and leaning forward into the process. Um, and that's not only on their own, um, hopefully, but also um, 
working together with other countries. And we have examples from the past of the EU working together with um, small island states, with least developed countries and others, the Latin American um, countries in ILAC. Um, so that will be an important part um, as well. Um, we talked about Japan. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, we, we have yet to see how the basic group, which is Brazil, South Africa, India, and China, will engage. But um, uh, hopefully that, that will be a constructive engagement. And that group has, at, at certain points in, in past years, been a quite um, important part of the process. So um, ho- hopefully that can be a, a constructive engagement as well. Um, there are others, of course, and we are seeing leadership on the ground from a number of countries like New Zealand, Norway, um, uh, certain parts of the EU in particular, such as the Netherlands and Spain. Um, so hopefully those will all be countries that, that um, take a, a real role in the, in the process. And that leadership needs to continue next year. Um, it's not the end of, of, the, of, the world, of, of the road here. So 2018 is a springboard you know, for ambition and it needs to lend itself to, to provide also clear signals uh, during the UN Gen- uh, Secretary General Assembly um, uh, Summit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, I would just note, by the way, um, for those who aren't aware, that the Climate Vulnerable Forum, which is 48 highly vulnerable developing countries, um, small to medium-sized countries, will be holding a virtual summit on November 22nd. And I think that will send some very strong signals in terms of readiness to um, strengthen NDCs on their, themselves as well as to make clear that the world as a whole needs to do so. Great. I think that was a really good, broad question to, to end on. Um, we're over time, so I want to be respectful to both the reporters and our experts on the call. But thank you so much for joining. I think it was a really um, rich conversation. And just to reiterate that we do have a recording of this. If you want a recording, just email me. Um, and um, we have a lot of resources um, from blog posts to this um, brand new uh, media tip sheet called Explaining the Paris Rulebook, What You Need to Know for COP24 that is now available on our website at wri.org slash COP24. Um, so please do be in touch with us in the weeks ahead. Uh, we will have another formal press call, more for quotation with some other experts um, just before the negotiations. But we're always here to talk to you before then. And, of course, we'll see you um, for two full weeks um, in Katowice, Poland. All right, so thank you very much, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Now, please close the call. That concludes today's conference. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.